Hey, welcome back. I don't know if you're aware, but there's a whole divestment movement on social media. And listen, I don't know much about it because I'm not that into social media. I go on Instagram only for the sake of the podcast, but it's basically a bunch of black women who have decided to no longer date, marry, or procreate with black men. Totally their business. Do you more power to you? The long and short of it is that they don't want struggle love and the domestic violence that often accompanies relationships with black men. And I totally get that part. Apparently these ladies are just like, you know, go get you a Brad and elevate your life, right? Um, Which, hey, like I said, do you, peace and love. But I find this particularly cringy because it's not like white men don't kill their girlfriends and wives either. I assume that the divesters aren't aware of the fact that interracial couples actually experience intimate partner violence at a higher rate than monoracial white couples. But, and here's the kicker, the numbers of IPV are in close proximity to the data surrounding black couples. So meaning the odds of being in an abusive domestic violence situation are pretty much just as high in an interracial relationship than with a Black partner. So we really need to be careful with our assumptions and the things that we're talking about and the motivations and reasons behind them. I think that if we have a platform and you have hundreds or thousands of people listening or watching what you're doing and saying, I do think that what you're saying is important that you're putting out there and at least speak on the facts about it. So It's fine if people want to find love where they can be loved and, you know, whatever body that love comes from, that's fine. But to have this whole like, quote unquote, movement about divesting and these reasons, you know, that doesn't hold up to the facts. So that's kind of my whole point. Yes, I totally believe that black men are definitely out here killing us and they need to stop and they absolutely need to be held accountable, but they aren't the only ones doing it. Turns out shit can get real at any time with any partner under the right circumstances. Now, anyway, I know most of the stories I tell on this podcast are domestic violence enacted by black men on black women. But today's episode, in light of that little intro there, it's different. It's just one example of a non-black man's violence against a black woman. One thing I found a little strange as I researched this case is how absent the topic of race was, though, throughout the entire story. I didn't find mention of it not one time in anything that I read, and that truly just blew my mind because, after all, this is America. Good luck finding anything completely void of race politics, but, alas, this case bore not even so much as a mention that the relationship was interracial. I do have to admit, A part of me was a little refreshed by that because the focus stayed on the victim and the subsequent crime, as it should. But I definitely was made curious about this whole thing and the fact that it wasn't even mentioned. Anyway, without further delay, let's get into this episode. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Misogynoir Murders. It's the afternoon of Tuesday, October 14th, 2014, and Nathan Character is filing a missing persons report at the San Diego Police Department for his best friend, 31-year-old Elizabeth Sullivan. He knows in his gut something is seriously wrong because he hasn't heard from her, and that is just totally unlike her. However, The SDPD officer wasn't all that inclined to take the report very seriously, although he did take it. After all, Liz was an adult, so she could choose to be out of touch if she wanted to be. Basically, the vibe was to chill, but Nathan couldn't chill. He knew that it was a very precarious time in his dear friend's life, and he was scared for her safety. A few nights prior, 
for the weekend of Friday, October 10th and Saturday, October 11th. Elizabeth spent the weekend at Nathan's house where they spent the night as two besties would with libations and good company. Liz really just needed some space to clear the air because there was so much to talk about. The first topic of discussion, which as it is, happens to be the catalyst to this whole story, is that Liz's in-laws were coming to town and apparently not for some short visit. No, they were moving in. While you might adore your in-laws, this was not the case for Elizabeth, especially as it pertained to her mother-in-law. Some years before, Liz and the mother-in-law had a confrontation that was apparently pretty serious, that essentially guaranteed a contentious future for them. As it was, they probably didn't even really know each other that well, but let me not get too far ahead of myself. At any rate, Liz definitely had her reasons for not wanting the in-laws living in her home with her two young daughters, ages two and four, but I was never able to confirm what those reasons were, but it kind of stuck in the back of my mind like maybe it was a racial thing, but if it was, it was never brought up. So she was really pissed about having them there and she was willing to go to great lengths to prevent it. Apparently, Liz planned to see an attorney to get a restraining order against her husband Matthew Sullivan's family so they couldn't stay at the house. Now, I'm not too sure how that would have all worked out, but she was hell-bent on not having them there. And as you can imagine, those kind of moves probably weren't great for her husband, right? Which brings me to the next topic of discussion for that night, the marriage. As I'm sure you surmised by now, Elizabeth's marriage to Matt was not in a good place. In fact, she was a nervous wreck when it came to it. Things between them had gotten so bad, and to top it all off, there was also abuse. Nathan told Keith Morrison in a Dateline episode called Secret by the Bay that Elizabeth told him that Matt had grabbed her and screamed and yelled in her face. It was something that really scared her and was pretty much a very serious demonstration of violence. So she planned to seek help from an attorney to get a divorce based on domestic abuse. She had an appointment with a lawyer scheduled for Monday to begin the process of putting all this stuff in motion. To say it was a stressful time is truly an understatement, but she was committed to seeing all of this through. The two friends talked most of the night, and then Liz prepared to head home on Sunday morning. The in-laws were due to arrive from Minnesota on Tuesday, October 14th, so she promised to keep Nathan in the loop. Nathan spoke to Liz later on that Sunday, but the conversation was brief. He got the sense that Elizabeth was really stressed, and she just hurried him off the phone. She basically told him she'd call him the next day, Monday, and ended the call. However, the sun rose and set on Monday, and no phone calls or texts came from Elizabeth, even though Nathan texted and called her many times. By Tuesday afternoon, Nathan was certain something was wrong, so that's when he reported Liz missing to the police. Now, before I jump too far ahead, Let me give you a little background information. Liz was born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia. And listen, I can never say that city, so please forgive me, don't drag me. Is it Norfolk, Norfolk, Norfolk? Like, what is it? I don't know. And every time I Google it or watch something on YouTube, everybody says it differently. So I'm from LA. I don't know them Southern city names, so please forgive me. Anyway, she was from Virginia, and Matthew, he was from Minnesota. In fact, he was in the Navy and stationed in Norfolk, which is how they met. They started hanging out, and then that turned into dating, and the rest was history. About two months into their dating, Matthew received orders to report for duty in San Diego, forcing the new couple to decide how to proceed with their new relationship. The options were to break up, do long distance, or get married. 
They chose door number three and without saying a word to either of their families, got married. They did, however, have an intimate reception after the fact that was attended by about 10 people, which included her best friend and former colleague, Calandra Duckett. They were a young couple embarking on a life journey across the country together, and I bet there was an air of excitement about the whirlwind romance, but life wasn't quite done with the surprises yet. Not long after their nuptials, did Elizabeth find out she was pregnant with the couple's first child, Ryan. Now, as fast and sudden as all of this was, Elizabeth was known for being impulsive and would sometimes make rash decisions in the blink of an eye. No one was really surprised by the rapid changes because this was simply how she rolled. She was a rock star in her friend group and now she was a naval wife and soon to be mother. The newlyweds packed up and shipped out to San Diego where they moved into a townhouse on the Navy base at Liberty Station. After barely settling into their new home, Matthew was deployed overseas where he spent a solid portion of the first two years of their time in San Diego. When he left, Liz was very pregnant and also very alone, having left all her friends and family behind. I can't imagine how hard that time must have been for her though. She was in a whole new city and state while expecting a baby without so much as one parent in the area. It must have been kind of scary and incredibly lonesome for her, but Elizabeth, ever a force to be reckoned with, pushed through. Eventually, she had their daughter and Matthew came home for a brief stint before he was off to another deployment but not without leaving Elizabeth pregnant and alone for a second time. With two kids she was practically raising on her own, she developed her own routine, regardless of how difficult it may have been. One day, the tornado of a woman blew into Nathan's eyeglass shop where he was working at the time with her double stroller and big energy. The two of them struck up a conversation and ended up talking for hours and hours, and thus her first tight friendship in San Diego was forged. The two became besties in quick order, spending lots of time together over the next few years. Nathan helped fill the lonely void in Elizabeth's heart, and she provided him with a safe space to be his true self. A beautiful and meaningful friendship developed and eventually the two of them did everything together and told each other everything. Which is why the whole her pulling this disappearing act on him just simply didn't fly. So now it's October 16th and Elizabeth has officially been declared missing. A missing persons unit investigation began and detectives headed to Elizabeth's house. By this time, the in-laws were in residence, and officers had plans to ask Matthew questions and to do a walkthrough of the Sullivan home. Their intention was to, you know, kind of get their bearings about Elizabeth and her disappearance and the events leading up to it, and just to kind of get a look around the house for any signs of foul play. They walked throughout the house, looking inside the bedrooms and asking questions about their home life. There really wasn't anything of note about the house, but when they went to the garage, they noticed a couple of things worth mentioning. There was a large, deep freezer. It was plugged in, but it was completely empty, like nothing inside, nothing at all, but plugged in. Kind of weird, but nothing major. There was also a broken mirror, and the 2008 black Volvo that Elizabeth inherited from her mother after she died in 2012. The car was mostly empty inside, save for a parking receipt and a few articles of trash. Obviously, the investigators had some questions that needed answers, so they asked Matthew to tell him about the last time he saw Liz. Matthew told them that he last saw Liz on Monday night, the 13th, and she only came home briefly before walking out of their home again. She'd left her two cell phones, her laptop, her personal journals, her children, and her car. But he had noticed one of the suitcases was missing, and she'd taken something else. 
According to Matthew, Elizabeth transferred all the money in their joint checking account into her personal account, a sum of $1,072. The missing suitcase and the transfer of money certainly suggested that Liz planned to leave, but it's still super weird that she took the money in the suitcase but left the children her phone and didn't take her car. I'm sorry, but all of this definitely kind of waves a giant red flag to me, but let me not get sidetracked here. Matt posited that Liz simply walked out and just never came back. He handed over the journals and devices for investigators to review for clues about where she might have gone and who she might be with. And when they asked him why he didn't report her missing, he said that unfortunately this was not strange behavior. Liz had a habit of leaving and staying out for hours on end, sometimes a day or maybe even two without saying anything about where she was or who she was with. He said that she would sometimes sleep in the park near their house or has even gone to a homeless shelter before. So when she left this time, she was upset about his family moving in the next day. So he wasn't worried. He just figured she needed to cool off and would eventually be back. He did tell officers that he tried to call Liz and text her several times, but she never responded. But my question here is, why would he be calling and texting her when all her devices were at home? See, for me, the math ain't mathin', and it never really was from the get-go. But anyway, I digress. I've been digressing early lately. (laughs) At any rate, the detectives did their due diligence and followed up on some of the information they got from Matthew, starting with the Navy Federal Credit Union. They confirmed the money had in fact been transferred from the joint checking account into Elizabeth's sole account, just like Matt said. And there was also recent debit card activity after Elizabeth disappeared. So naturally, again, this was a pretty good sign that Liz was probably just off doing her own thing. But still, the investigation would continue until they could confirm definitively that she was alive and well. Meanwhile, A $1,000 reward for information about Liz's disappearance was announced, and a missing persons flyer with pictures of her smiling face were posted. Some of the local news covered her disappearance too. She was described as an African-American woman standing at five feet, three inches tall, and weighing about 130 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. As luck would have it, the media blitz paid off because Elizabeth was spotted twice. About a week after Liz disappeared, it was reported that an off-duty sheriff's deputy and his wife saw Elizabeth at the Liberty Station soccer field, just a short walk from her house. The couple said she wore black stretch pants and a gray sweatshirt and was looking for her cell phone. She seemed disoriented and looked very thin In fact, a word used to describe her appearance was quote-unquote emaciated. She definitely didn't look like she weighed 130 pounds, but there was no mistaking that this woman they saw was Elizabeth. The only problem was that the couple wasn't 100% positive exactly when they saw her, but they thought it was after she went missing. Although this wasn't the concrete confirmation of life they hoped for, investigators thought this was heading in the right direction, but they still needed more. And a few days later, they got it. Well, sort of. Someone else said they saw Elizabeth near the San Diego International Airport, but that sighting wasn't confirmed. Time continued to pass, and soon it had been a month since Elizabeth last hugged her babies or spoke to any of her loved ones. Her family and friends and children were on edge, and everyone wanted to find her. Her father, Edward Ricks, and her cousin flew from Virginia to San Diego to help search for his beloved daughter. He hired a private investigator and did an interview on November 6th with NBC7 News, pleading for his daughter's safe return. It was clear that he was a father desperate to find his child. He knew that Liz was impulsive, yeah, but one thing she never was, was an irresponsible or negligent mother. 
The fact that she'd been gone so long without so much as a word to her children or to him was unheard of. He and Liz spoke every day, just like she talked to Calandra and Nathan daily. One thing that stuck out to me regarding the interview Edward did was that Matt and the girls were nowhere to be found, even though the interview took place literally across the street from their house. Edward later said that when the reporter asked Matt to join them, he declined. It was another abnormal thing that investigators couldn't completely ignore, but maybe that's just because Matt did his own interview with People Magazine for their November issue. In that article, he talked about how difficult the last month had been for him and how he was, quote, at the end of his rope. I'm running on fumes now. I don't know where to look. I'm always looking around the neighborhood trying to catch a glimpse of her. Even if I got a phone call saying she's okay, it would put my mind at rest. But nothing at this point, end quote. Matthew admitted that he and Elizabeth had some problems in their marriage and that he was supportive of her needing space to hang out with her friends more. After all, she'd been stuck alone raising the girls while he was away on his deployment, so he gave the impression that it was only fair that she be allowed her me time. Matthew went on to point out how, despite taking off for a night to hang out with friends here and there, Elizabeth had never been gone more than one night of their daughter's whole lives. She'd always been there for them, so for it to have been a month and she was still nowhere to be found, it was gut-wrenching. The article continued to give Matt the space to talk about how devastating this event had been on him. He said he felt lost and he had even lost 25 pounds and that Elizabeth's current status was quote unquote, killing him. He was motivated to keep going for the girls, of course, because they needed him now more than ever. He also mentioned that the girls were actually in counseling to help them process the fact that their mom was missing. The article did a lot to convey the toll on a family when a tragedy like this occurs. It's immense for everyone involved. Edward also added to that people write up that it had been hard on him too, and he really just missed his daughter, and he knew she would not run away like this. With no new leads, detectives decided to circle back and question those closest to Liz again. So they narrowed in on Nathan. While he was never a suspect, he said in that Dateline interview that the police showed up unannounced to his job and their questions seemed more interrogatory than like simple follow-ups. They even went so far as to ask him for a polygraph test and he didn't immediately agree to it. He told them he needed to think about it and hey, I don't blame him. It's such a catch-22 when it comes to those tests because on one hand, why wouldn't you want to take it if you didn't have anything to hide? But on the other hand, nerves could get in the way and get the best of you and make you look guilty in the results. It's really kind of an awful predicament to be in, so being conflicted about how to proceed seems normal to me. Meanwhile, Nathan wasn't the only man in Liz's life under the microscope. As you can imagine, the husband was also closely scrutinized and was asked to take a lie detector test too, and he agreed to. By this time, missing persons had reached out to the homicide unit for assistance because Elizabeth's disappearance was looking more and more like something nefarious happened to her. Kim Collier, now retired, was a detective assigned to Liz's case. She said in that Dateline episode that not only did Matthew agree to take the test, but he passed it. When asked what he believed happened to his wife, he said what he'd been saying all along, that she simply left. But the question of why remained. As detectives dug into Liz's background some more, they came to learn that she was a complicated woman, as described by those closest to her and she was also under a psychiatrist's care to help her manage the borderline personality disorder she struggled with. 
She was prescribed medication, including Adderall, and she had a tendency to self-medicate. She told her friends and wrote in the journal she kept that she abused her prescriptions, occasionally taking more than she should of her favorites. She'd even dabbled in crystal meth and cocaine with friends on occasion. Now, it wasn't stated or implied that Elizabeth was a hardcore drug user or that she was often in an impaired state, but it was clearly a symptom that she was troubled and had issues to work through. And I just wonder how effective her mental health treatments were in general, because in addition to the medicine abuse, Elizabeth also self-cut. In an effort to relieve herself of stress, anxiety, etc., she would make shallow cuts on her body, mostly her arms, just enough for a quick bite of pain and a little blood. However, there were other times when she cut herself too deep, Regardless of the depth of the cuts, I can't help but wonder what kind of pain a person must be in to find relief in self-harm. What internal hell was Elizabeth entrenched in that she was craving release in that way? It's heartbreaking and unfortunately, I don't think I'll ever know those answers. She journaled some of those thoughts, however, sometimes writing them plainly and other times channeling them into art. Liz wrote a short story about a woman who fell in love with the quote-unquote white knight, moved to California, and had a baby. But unfortunately, things weren't headed for a storybook romance. The woman's marriage was loveless, miserable even, and she felt like a failure. She needed to free herself of the burdensome life she led, so she left everything and everyone she knew, including her daughter, and walked right out the front door. Now. To anyone paying attention, it wasn't hard to discern that this character mirrored a lot of very real parts of Elizabeth's life. There was evidence in the journals that Liz felt like she was the problem and maybe it would just be better if she wasn't around anymore. Of course, this brought up the possibility of suicide, which was an avenue that couldn't be completely ruled out in the investigation. So it was certainly something that detectives kept in the back of their mind, even though, yes, it was a dark road to travel down. By now, it was very obvious to them that Elizabeth's marriage to Matthew was rocky at best and completely unsalvageable at worst. They were total and complete opposites, with Elizabeth ready to explore the world, but Matthew just wasn't interested. He was really more of a homebody. He spent his days working at the naval base and his evenings at home. He was content with that, but this wasn't on par with Liz's bustling life of the party way of being. On top of that, she had the burden of taking care of all things, cleaning, grocery shopping, errands, cooking, taking care of the kids, and driving Matt to and from work because he didn't have a driver's license. She even had a job, although I'm not sure how long she worked or what her hours were specifically, but she had one. So a lot of the burden of the day-to-day -day life fell on Elizabeth's shoulders. Despite the problems their marriage had, however, the couple did try their best in 2013 to save their marriage. I guess they both remembered that their family was worth their best efforts. Friends said that for a short time, they began to rediscover what they loved about each other and were happy. But as fate would have it, the newly rekindled romance was soon extinguished and they started sleeping in separate bedrooms and by the following summer elizabeth announced she was on tender and that revelation would open the door to a new room of people for police to question during the summer of 2014 just months before she disappeared elizabeth decided to roll the dice and start dating Calandra said that Tinder wasn't anything Elizabeth planned to take seriously. She just wanted to test the waters and see what was out there. It's hard to know exactly what Liz's intentions were, but whatever they were, she was out there and the first guy to mention is Marcus Hodges. I'm guessing it wasn't a love connection because they never made it past casual, which may not have been a bad thing because turns out when the police checked to see if he had a record, 
According to that Dateline episode, he did have a criminal record for choking his ex-wife. Yikes. So yes, it definitely sounds like she dodged a bullet with him. But naturally, the police wanted to take a closer look at him considering that past. However, they weren't able to find that he was involved with anything, so they moved on. The next suitor would be much more promising. His name was Stephen Sutton, and he really hit it off with Liz. They spent quite a bit of time together, hanging out at the home he shared with his roommate. And by all accounts, they really got on well together, and Steve must have seemed like Mr. Right to Liz. He was everything Matthew wasn't, ambitious, fun, and educated. She could have meaningful conversations with him, and she really liked that. Of course, investigators wanted to talk to Steve, but he wasn't having any of that. He lawyered up real quick, and that was that. And I can't say that I blame the guy. I'd probably do the same thing, guilty or not, because it's best to get a lawyer when in a pickle like that. Anyway, with Stephen being uncooperative, detectives did what they had to do and asked around about Liz and Stephen. According to friends, things were going really well between them, but Liz intentionally left out the fact that she was a married woman with two children. And as I mentioned before, she spent a lot of time at Steve's place with him and his roommate, but sometimes the roommate's girlfriend was there. And let's put it this way, Sister Girl was not a fan of Liz. Check this out. The girlfriend noticed that there were two car seats in Elizabeth's car and randomly came to the super wrong conclusion that, of course, Liz must have been leaving her two children home alone while she was at Steven's house. Now, I know that sounds crazy as hell, and I don't know why or how this woman came to that conclusion, but I speculate that maybe she asked Liz about the car seats and got a dodgy answer. I don't know for sure, but regardless of the reason, this woman took it upon herself to call Child Protective Services to report Liz for neglect. And listen, I get it, her heart was in the right place, and there are times when that type of action is necessary, but this was definitely not one of those times. And that single act of messy Karen energy was the beginning of the end of everything. On September 16th, everything kind of came to a head. This was a little under a month before Liz's disappearance. And Matthew received a call from CPS informing him of the complaint made against Elizabeth. Matt was actually at home with the girls while Elizabeth was out, so I guess he was able to convince the CPS representative that all was well. But clearly a conversation needed to be had with Elizabeth. Now, Liz also knew about the CPS call because she was scared to go home and deal with it all. She called Nathan up and told him how scared she was and she didn't really want to tell Matt everything and she didn't know what she was going to do. Nathan told her that basically she only had one thing she could do, which was to come clean and tell the truth. So she put on her big girl panties and she went home to face the music. However, Matthew's version of events paints a different story. He told detectives that when Liz came home, she marched right into the house without even greeting him or their daughters and went straight upstairs to her bedroom and closed the door. Matthew claims he gave her a few minutes before going after her to talk to her about everything that had transpired earlier that day. When he opened the bedroom door, he said that what he saw horrified him. Allegedly, Elizabeth had broken a mirror in her bedroom, the very same mirror the missing persons unit saw in the garage a month later, and she had a long shard of glass and was brutally cutting into her arm. According to Matthew, the earlier events of that day were put on the back burner and he focused on treating and bandaging Elizabeth's wound. Nathan, who saw her shortly after that event, noticed the large bandage and was really concerned about Liz. She told him that she felt so bad about everything that happened and so she cut herself too deeply. So with all this new information turned up by the investigators, they went back to Matt to ask him about the cheating. He basically relayed that while he was surprised she cheated, 
It wasn't something completely out of question. He knew their marriage was in a bad place and they'd slept in separate rooms ever since their youngest daughter Greer was born. He basically gave off the fact that he was unbothered about his wife's online dating and it simply was what it was. So by this time, the detectives really wanted to talk to Steve since all that stuff started with the phone call to CPS, but he still refused to talk. This definitely did not cast him in a positive light, especially considering how polar opposite Matt had been with detectives. I mean, here's a guy who had all the bad stories to tell that could definitely point the finger right at him, but he still cooperated with the investigation, and that simply wasn't the case when it came to Steven. The more detectives tried to talk to him, the more he resisted, so they continued to investigate him from a distance, including conducting a full search of a lake near his house. So this lake is a lake that Steve used to take Liz to when they were seeing each other, and it was just off the beaten path enough to be worth searching for Elizabeth at. The detectives had search and rescue conduct a search of the area and they wound up finding a shallow grave. At the top of the shallow grave was a high-heeled shoe, which, as cliche as it might sound, definitely further compelled the searchers to dig it up. When they did, however, they learned the grave contained not Elizabeth's body, but the remains of an animal. It was bittersweet that it wasn't Liz, but the longer she was unheard from, the more turmoil her family experienced. Eventually, her dad, Edward, began begging and pleading with Steve to let him know what he knew about Elizabeth. And to my surprise, Steve actually did. Well, via his lawyer. The lawyer relayed that about a month or so after Liz's disappearance, Steve received an email from Moniker, a badly drawn girl. And this wasn't an email address he recognized. The sender claimed to be Elizabeth, but he wasn't sure if it was her or not, so he asked a coded question that he knew only Elizabeth would know the answer to. What did she give him for his birthday? The answer was a Gumby keychain. Convinced that the sender was in fact Elizabeth, he responded to the email. When detectives requested that he forward that email to them, they learned he could no longer do so because he deleted it. I totally get why Steve was reluctant to talk to the police and lawyered up and all the things. But what I can't for the life of me understand is why in the world he wouldn't have let the police know about the email sooner. I mean, for better or worse, Liz was someone he cared about, spent a lot of time with, and she was missing. You'd think he'd want to help out as much as possible. But again, that just wasn't the case. It's so disappointing because that email could have been helpful to investigators earlier. But alas, that's not the way this story goes. Back to square one, the investigation went, except that the hope that Elizabeth was out there alive and well somewhere continued to diminish because no other emails had been sent from that email address and those witnesses earlier who thought they saw Elizabeth at the park were mistaken about the day they saw her. Turns out they did see her, but it was before she disappeared. And that alleged sighting of her at the airport wasn't a sighting of her at all. Then there was a matter of the money she took from the joint account. In all this time, it simply sat in her account completely untouched. And those bank transactions that previously posted to her account actually were transacted before Elizabeth disappeared, not after. Now, the writing was on the wall, and investigators were pretty sure that Elizabeth was no longer alive, and they needed to find out who killed her. They eventually did, one by one, clear all the suspects and persons of interest they had before. Nathan, Marcus Hodges, and yes, even Stephen. After investigators executed a search warrant at Stephen's house, he was officially cleared of any involvement at all. 
but his reluctance to cooperate wasted months of resources. Well, I guess it wasn't a total bust because the deeper dive into Stephen ultimately beamed a spotlight onto Matthew. Based on Stephen's phone records, he and Elizabeth had stayed in touch with each other up until October 13th, the last day she was seen or heard from. And something else detectives uncovered in Stephen's records, several text messages from Matthew. The messages were antagonistic and borderline harassment. Here are some of the messages he sent Stephen. Quote, Liz will need a place to stay soon, end quote. And, quote, I forgot to mention I work at a hospital in case you want to get that STD cleared up, end quote. These text messages went on and on, and they were sent from the end of September up till just about six days before Liz disappeared, and they got progressively more badgering. They seemed to also coincide with when he and Liz would talk on the phone. For example, on October 6th, Matthew sent a text saying, quote, good chat today, end quote, implying that like he heard what they said. Now, I don't know if that's the case. I never read any evidence was submitted that corroborated that, but there were a lot of text messages that kind of alluded to the fact that he was aware of the context of their conversations. And the last message he sent Stephen was one that said he was going to put Elizabeth out of the house soon, and if Steve actually cared about her, he'd step up and support her. So now that this harassment came to light, it casted shadows of doubt on Matthew's earlier statements to investigators that he wasn't upset or hurt by Elizabeth's infidelity. On the contrary, his harassment of Stephen spoke volumes about just how upset Matthew truly was. It was time to revisit Matthew as a suspect and look at him and his statements with a new lens. They also confirmed that the parking receipt found in Liz's car early in her disappearance was actually from a parking lot near the divorce attorney's office she visited on October 13th. The lawyer advised Liz that since there was a history of violence in the marriage, Liz would be able to get a restraining order against him and then file for a divorce. She did manage to get the restraining order, but she never made it to the next steps of filing for a divorce for obvious reasons. As detectives kept digging, they also found out that on the very same day, a 911 call was placed from Elizabeth's home. It was Matt who called the police, and he sounded stressed and completely concerned. He told the dispatcher that his wife took his credit card to, quote, hire an attorney against him, end quote, and she took all the money from their joint account. He was worried that she was going to try to accuse him of, quote unquote, something and take their daughters away. He mentioned that he knew Elizabeth called the police earlier, but he didn't elaborate on that. There really wasn't anything for the police to do about any of the stuff he just relayed, so the dispatcher advised him that he should call back if something should happen after Elizabeth came home. Now, that's not the only red flag uncovered. It came to be known that the same week that the People Magazine article was published, Matthew deleted all remnants of Elizabeth off his Facebook page. He also deleted all of her friends, including Calandra, when she and others reached out to him to offer their assistance during those initial weeks after Elizabeth disappeared. Matthew declined the help. Then he turned off Elizabeth's cell phone just a month after she disappeared. And in my mind, I was kind of gobsmacked that the police didn't catch any of this stuff sooner. After all, two completely different units investigated this case, and yet they missed the Facebook activity. They also missed something else that was pretty damn huge. On the night of October 13th, Liz managed to call Calandra, and she sounded frantic and afraid. 
She told Calandra that she had locked herself in her bedroom and Matthew was outside saying he was going to kill her. The next thing Calandra knew, Liz was whispering to hold on that Matt was coming and then the line disconnected. I don't know why Liz called her friend all the way in Virginia instead of the police, but she did and that was the last time anyone heard from her. When Nathan reported her missing the next day, everything clicked in Calandra's mind. She immediately reached out to SDPD to report what happened the night before, but somehow that tip was never followed up on. Meanwhile, she watched Matt completely erase her best friend from his virtual life online, and none of it sat well with her. She called and called regarding Liz's last phone call to her, but nothing ever came of that then. Then, about three months after Liz's disappearance, Matt had a new girlfriend move into the house. This is around the time that Detective Collier started to take note of Matthew's online activities. And supposedly, this woman was a mutual friend of his and Liz's who offered to help take care of the kids. But there was quite a bit more to it than that. And I'm sure you guessed that, right? Apparently, this woman was Matthew's friend and former Navy comrade, and not some mutual friend like Matthew said. And it was pretty clear that he had moved on and replaced Elizabeth with this woman. And then there were the suspicious purchases from the hardware store. The first purchase was made on October 14th the day Nathan reported Liz missing. Matt made a special run to the store and bought carpet cleaner and literally nothing else. When police questioned him about that, he said it was because the carpet looked dirty and his mom was arriving later that day, so he wanted it to be clean for her arrival. Sure, that's a perfectly normal explanation, yeah, but it definitely raised some red flags. Then, a month later, Matt purchased more carpet cleaner, and this is the really suspicious part, a 20 inch by 1,000 feet roll of stretch wrap plastic. You know, the giant rolls of plastic most commonly used by my favorite fictional serial killer, Dexter. Yeah, the very same kind that he used to dispose of dismembered bodies, that's what Matthew purchased. And you'll never believe what excuse he gave for that. Again, he used his mom, and this time he said it was because she brought a lot of stuff that needed to be wrapped up and put in storage. How much stuff could she possibly bring on an airplane that needed to be tightly wrapped in industrial size plastic wrap and kept in storage. Yeah, so I know you're thinking what I'm thinking. The husband definitely did something, right? But while his behavior was suspicious, there wasn't any evidence that could be used against him. Sadly, time continued on and Elizabeth's case grew cold and it stayed that way for two whole years. And then one day, Almost two years to the day after Liz disappeared, a body was found caught among the rocks that lined the shoreline, just less than half a mile from her home. The body was dressed in a sweater, jeans, and one boot, and immediately everyone speculated that the body was Liz's. But it wasn't until a week later when police confirmed that to be true. Everyone's worst fear had come to pass, and Liz was indeed deceased. And as you can probably imagine, this was absolutely devastating news for her family and friends, who officially lost all hope of seeing Elizabeth again. When the medical examiner and forensic anthropologist performed the autopsy, they tested Liz's body for drugs and found confirmation that she'd taken her meds and indulged in a little weed, but neither of those caused her death. The autopsy revealed that there were small oval-shaped cuts in her sweater that pierced through her skin 
down to her rib cage. In fact, five ribs in the front and back showed nicks from some type of sharp object. Elizabeth had also been badly beaten. Her jaw was completely broken and a portion of her nasal bone was missing. Subsequently, her death was ruled a homicide by way of sharp force trauma, meaning she was stabbed to death. And there's one more thing to note about the autopsy, a big thing. When her body was discovered, it wasn't as badly decomposed as you'd imagine it would be if it had been found floating in water. The stage of decomposition indicated that she died within the last month or two before being discovered. They also noted that it was obvious that the body had laid on one side for a very long period of time. And with all this information, the assumption was that the body had been preserved in some way, like in a freezer of some sort, and then discarded by the bay. Detectives couldn't help but wonder, why now? What changed? Well, the answer to that was that Matt moved. Yeah, he and his new girlfriend had a baby, and the other two daughters, the mom, and all them folks, they moved. And they left to Maryland, which is where the girlfriend got a new job, and that's where she was going. So Matt and everyone went with her. And get this, it happened three days before Liz's body was found. Literally three days. And he didn't say a word to detectives about moving, even though they were still investigating his wife's disappearance. It was almost as if he didn't want them to find out. Luckily for the investigation, Detective Collier had been keeping an eye on Matthew's Facebook page after all that stuff that they had missed previously. She was like, I'm not missing a single thing. And she kind of suspected that when they had the new baby, there would be a possibility that they would outgrow that place and need to move. So she wanted to make sure that when that time came, she'd have a team ready so that they could tear that house up from top to bottom. Detectives knew that the last time Liz was heard from, she was in her bedroom trying to keep Matt out the night she disappeared. So that's exactly where the forensic team concentrated their search. And when they wiped the ensuite bathroom door with luminol, it lit up like a light bulb on both sides. Then their attention was drawn to a section of carpet just outside the bathroom door where the bedroom carpet stopped and the bathroom entryway began. When they cut and pulled up the section of carpet, they could see a large stain that looked like blood underneath. They sprayed it with the luminol and again, it illuminated, confirming the stain was blood. They continued to peel back the layers of carpet padding and the more they lifted, the more blood stains they found. Blood had soaked clear through to the subflooring and also left a large stain, at least a foot wide. It was obvious someone had bled and a lot in that spot, and even more obvious that someone else went to great lengths to cover it up. Of course, the carpet was sent out for DNA testing, and the results confirmed it was Elizabeth's blood. So now, the investigators had a body, a crime scene, and a suspect, but they didn't quite have a winning case for trial. Yes, what they had was great circumstantial evidence, but they needed to find the murder weapon and put it in Matthew's hand before a district attorney would be willing to take the case to trial. So, detectives flew to Maryland to re-interview Matthew. It was another long interrogation, but he refused to confess, and without that, they still had nothing. And wouldn't you know, another long, painful year passed, and Matthew moved to Delaware, and the investigation team decided they should go back to the house at Liberty Station for one final look-see. During their last search, they noticed that the bedrooms had access to the attic, but for whatever reason, during their last search, 
they didn't go up there. And if they did, they certainly didn't do a super thorough search. Now, the reasons why, I have no idea, but they wanted to go back and take a look again. When they got to the attic, it was covered in insulation, so they got to work and pulled back layer after layer after layer of insulation all over the attic. They literally didn't want to miss a single inch. And as luck would have it, Detective Collier saw something that didn't belong. It was a black military-style folding knife that was nestled between wood and insulation, like it had been hidden there. This was the moment that they found what they believed to be the murder weapon used to kill Elizabeth, and they wasted no time sending it out for testing. When the forensic results were in, they got the confirmation they hoped for. It was positive for Elizabeth's blood, which was found in the crevices on the blade and on the bolts that secured the blade to the handle. They also found a mixture of her DNA and Matt's DNA on the handle, although it was noted that it was primarily Matthew's DNA and very little of Elizabeth's. Now this was what the DA needed to make a slam dunk case against Matthew. So on January 31st, 2018, he was arrested at his home in Delaware and extradited right back to San Diego. His bail was set at a whopping $2 million, and so he sat in jail, waiting for his day in court. The day finally came on February 21st, 2020, and Matthew finally stood trial for the murder of his wife. Deputy District Attorney Jill Lindbergh conveyed to the court that the Sullivan marriage was one wrought with financial problems, infidelity, and violence. She argued that these issues laid the foundation for murder. The point was hammered home when Liz's friends, Calandra and Nathan, were called to testify. Calandra's testimony was especially damning for the defense because of that final call she had with Elizabeth. The prosecution presented to the jury all that Detective Collier and her team found, the history of abuse, the massive blood stain, the hidden combat knife, and posited that Elizabeth was killed that October 9th, back in 2014. Unfortunately, it was that part, the time of death, where things got tricky for the state and provided a sliver of wiggle room for the defense. Matthew's defense attorney argued that there was no way his client could have killed Elizabeth two whole years before her body was found because the science had already proven that the decomposition of her body indicated she died within a month or two. And it wasn't like it was easy to just leave a dead body lying around the house. Surely someone would have noticed, right? And about the knife and bloodstain evidence, well, it was Matthew's military knife. So naturally his DNA would be on it since again, it was his. But it's not unreasonable to think that since Elizabeth was known to be a self-cutter, she probably used Matthew's knife to cut herself before, thus explaining why her blood would be on the blade. Now, I can see that being, you know, a reasonable explanation, sure, maybe, I guess. But when it comes to the blood stain, my guy did a reach so far and wide that I actually had to laugh. He said that since Liz cut herself, sometimes too deeply, she bled on the carpet and to clean up the blood, that purchased carpet cleaner was used and the stain spread and spread due to the constant dowsing in water and cleaning solution. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a moment with that one. Like, come on, bro. That's the best you got? I gotta give him an A for creativity. At least he tried to defend his piece of shit client, but for all his effort, it mattered not. After about 10 days of testimony, both sides rested. The jury deliberated for about a day and a half and returned a guilty verdict for second degree murder. And in March, 2021, Matthew was sentenced to 16 years to life for what he did. At his sentencing, he made the following statement, and it's a doozy, quote, the only issue I had about trial was I believe I was not allowed to call in relevant witnesses to my defense. 
I thoroughly believe their testimony would have thoroughly changed the verdict in this trial. End quote. No remorse, no guilt, no tears that his wife was brutally murdered and he heard all of the evidence about how. No caring for the regard of what happened to the mother of his two children. Nothing. What he cared about was the fact that he couldn't call certain witnesses. Talk about the coldness of a killer. Elizabeth's daughters, Ryan and Greer, eventually moved to Virginia, where they're being raised by Elizabeth's dad and family. Calandra and Nathan remain deeply affected by the loss of their best friend, but both have tried to move on and live life to the fullest. Even to this day, they both honor their friendship with Elizabeth and post memories of her on their social media. I also really respect that they never dragged her name through the mud. As best friends, they knew so many things about Liz, a lot of which wasn't favorable. But they never sullied her name in the press. They never did any of that backhanded shit like you sometimes see in cases like this. They were true, diehard friends to the end and beyond. There are some things I do want to talk about that I didn't go into much during this episode. The first is that Elizabeth's story didn't bear the usual hallmarks of abuse, even though she was an abused woman in her marriage. I couldn't find testimony that pointed to having been hit, but there was information about Matt having forcefully grabbed her and yelling in her face, and that her friends noticed her personality had shrunken so much. She was isolated from the majority of her friends and family, and her phone conversations had gotten to the point where she just would whisper. She didn't want to set Matt off or start a fight or just anything that could cause conflict. And this is a telltale sign of abuse. It may not be black and blue bruises or, you know, constant terror, but this is definitely a sign of abuse. It's no wonder it took her a while to work up the courage to end her marriage. And as we can see, just as we have seen before, just as she was about to leave, literally the day of, he killed her. And as I have said so many times, leaving is the most dangerous time in a domestically violent relationship. It is not easy to cut yourself off from that. And sadly, Elizabeth, is among those poor victims who tried to get away and died in the process. Something else that I could not get out of my head was about Matt's family. I couldn't shake the feeling that maybe, possibly, they knew or were involved somehow. I'm not saying that they were, and let me be very clear. It has never been stated or written in anything that I could find publicly that they were ever suspected of being involved. But I just cannot help but wonder how they didn't know anything and where was the body all this time? I mean, it's not lost on me that all this happened right before their arrival. I imagine there really wasn't a lot of time to do a proper cleanup job before they came. Considering that Liz's body was frozen and then later disposed of in the bay, I find it really hard to believe that none of them knew or helped, but I guess that's the way it is. It's just kind of unbelievable to me. The last thing I want to mention is that when I watched some of the trial, it was painfully obvious that the defense's entire strategy was to discredit Elizabeth and drag her name through the mud. You'd have thought she was on trial for her own murder instead of Matthew. I mean, this dude brought up everything going back to when she was a child. Shit that didn't have anything to do with her being murdered while her baby slept in the room next door. The excuses and lame explanations offered by Matthew's defense were just downright disrespectful and useless. They only served to show that there was no level low enough for him to stoop to in an effort to get a guilty man off for murder. The Bose literally referred to Elizabeth as, quote, a cutter 
married to a naval man who had a secret life who made erratic decisions, end quote. And he said it with his chest because I heard him say it twice. Elizabeth was so much more than that. And to me, that description completely ignores the fact that she was a human being, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a person who struggled with mental health issues and substance abuse and considered herself badly drawn. But she wasn't a bad person and none of those things killed her. Matthew did all of that on his own. It's so important that we keep that at the forefront of our minds when we think about Elizabeth and hear her story and how her life was tragically cut short. Elizabeth mattered and she didn't deserve what she got. As always, thanks for listening. And per the usual, all the notes and resources I use will be in the show notes of this episode. But don't forget, Spotify users, that you can engage with me. I often post a question that you can answer and give me your direct feedback about the episode. So even if I forget to mention it in one of these episodes, if you're listening on Spotify, don't forget to look at the app and see if I've posted a question because I have posted a question for this episode and I also did for the last episode, Levita and Jasmine. So please go back and definitely leave some comments there and do so for this episode too. And I'll catch you next time on Massage and War Murders. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Redout. <laughs>